Welcome to The Accessible Altar, a podcast of conversations at the intersection of faith and disability. I'm Robin King. And I'm Stephanie Shockley, and we're your hosts. Today, for our first podcast, we'll be having some conversation together about this podcast and our experiences. And, and specifically, you spent some time uh, sort of interviewing me about some of the reasons and inspirations that brought me to the point of calling you and, and starting all this. Exactly. And so we're going to get to that interview in just a moment. And in the second half of today's episode, we're going to talk about the name, The Accessible Altar, and how we chose it. And what we like about it. Exactly. I really love our name. So I enjoyed that conversation. The first question that I have for you is, um, I'm wondering if you'd like to tell me about your formative experiences related to the topics of illness and disability. Hmm. I'm just trying to figure out how to start now. (laughs) Um, So the part that I'm most public about is I had three brain surgeries between university and seminary. Um, and the part that I tend to now generally assume everyone knows and everyone doesn't know is my mother was diagnosed with brain cancer when I was nine. Mm -hmm. So I have these like relatively young memories of, you know, my father fighting with insurance companies and, um, my mom being in a different city for radiation and chemotherapy treatments, um, and that really changing everything about how our family worked. Um, and then she had a period of remission and then was re-diagnosed and died. So there's a lot of also just family trauma related to that. Um, which definitely informed um, both some of why I came to really love the church because our church was lovely and really showed up for us in the middle of all of that. Um, But also informed my own approaches when I was like barely 19 and being told that I had a brain tumor and uh, suddenly had like more specialists than I think I'd ever seen or knew existed um, so what happens in a family that's already been through a trauma related to a brain tumor? Now, just to backtrack a little bit, my understanding is that your mom's condition and what happened to you are medically completely different. Yes, very than, different. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, different on every level. Okay. But it seems like I mean, that trauma in your family of your mom getting sick and then your mom dying, it seems like that, that's, I mean, in time, if you think about loss, that's really, that's really fast. That's really close to you, you know, having your own medical situation. I'm kind of wondering like what that, what, what that's like for a family and even like for a church and for, 
for, you know, for you? I mean, I, that's just. Um, I don't know if there's a, I have a good answer to that because it's one of the many traumas my family tends not to talk about. Um, what I noticed is it, I think sort of deepened everyone's response to my diagnosis because it, it automatically wasn't just about me because it's so, so easily connectable to this relatively recent group trauma we'd gone through with mom. Going forward a little bit. So you, you know, you had this really traumatic experience, you and your family when you were relatively young, and then you had your own situation, um, which was different, but obviously very serious, like, you know, not a small deal if I understand correctly. Yeah. So um, I had a pituitary adenoma, which is the fancy medical terms for like a a not cancer growth on my pituitary gland, which is sort of at the bottom of your brain, Mm -hmm. which, um, and people can look a little shocked when I say this in the world of brain tumors, it's like the good one to get (laughs) because they're very rarely cancerous and they tend to be very slow growing. Mm-hmm. Um, I I laugh a little bit about that only because um, you know people sometimes when they haven't been through a thing they don't realize like there's sort of like there is a whole universe of oh thank God for this diagnosis because the other options are much scarier you know yeah yeah there's kind of a scale there sometimes um. So yeah, so that was that was the uh, sort of like the initial diagnosis, and um, I mean, looking back on it, even at the time, I knew it was kind of funny because got, doctors kept saying things like, "Well, just in case, let's do this other test," and then it turns out that was exactly the test they needed to run, and I actually had to go do more tests and more blood work or whatever. Um, and then they found that I finally had the imaging done that that really definitively showed that, and all of a sudden I'm like have a specialist and another specialist. What city would you like your specialist to be in? Um, Because I was in university at the time. Um, And I mean, it was really happening too fast to try and process any of it. It was more like trying to keep numbers straight and information straight and learn, you know, more biology than I thought I would need in my adulthood. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in like days and hours um in the middle of undergraduate yeah yeah actually it was yeah it was the summer between my freshman and sophomore year of undergrad um where I had been planning to have like I mean except for the terrible pay like a fairly idyllic summer working at our church camp on the lake with my friends. Um, and now I was, you know, traveling to see doctors and and scheduling brain surgeries and leaving early so I could have brain surgery before I went back to university. Um, yeah. And so I know you said, um, you, just, you said earlier in the interview, you know, this happened... Um, having to have surgery happen three times. And um, 
for those who don't know and listen and are listening, they might think, oh, that happened, it happened three times in a summer or whatever, but there was a period of time between each one. Yeah. Right. So the first, between my first two surgeries, it was a little, now I have to do math in my head. <laughs> <laughs> they said there would was... be no math in the podcast. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I, I know not to believe such promises these days. <laughs> There's always math. There's always math. Um. Yeah, it was a little under two years. And then between my second and my third surgery, it would have been um, right around three years. So we fast forward a little bit. And by the time um, you you find out that you have to have a surgery for the third time, um, you are not only in the ordination process and the, the process of being uh, of being ordained to the priesthood in the Episcopal Church, you're in the middle of seminary. Yeah, not just in the middle. It was my um, last semester. I'm sorry, of you're seminary. not in the middle. You're at the end of seminary, right? <laughs> like at the end is almost in sight. Um, yeah, yeah, that was weird. I mean, seminary. You, you, we, we went, we overlapped at seminary. Um, so you know what I mean. <laughs> I say seminary was so weird. Um, because it is. It just. I think functionally has to be, but yeah, that, that was weird. That was weird even for seminary. What, so what, what it was the, what was that like to be in the ordination process or to be in seminary and to sort of, to be navigating these, that world, which you're right is for lack of a better term, weird. Um, <laughs> and to be navigating these two things at once, like you're, you were a young ordinant. Yes. Um, yeah, I was one of the rare ones who went straight from undergrad to seminary. Right. So you're a young ordinand, which which also makes it weird, weirder. Mm -hmm. um, you're in seminary. You're dealing with these health issues. All like, how does that all all fit together, or 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 does it? I don't. I mean, I think it does in some strange ways, and it really doesn't. Um, I mean, I. Don't think it's a surprise to hear either one of us say that like the church doesn't always deal with this stuff well. If it did, we wouldn't need to have a podcast about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Um, but I think one of the advantages I had was because a lot of this was seen as, you know, basically like acute medical care and not and and what wasn't seen was were some of the chronic conditions and disabilities that like we're either, um, I hate the term side effects, but sort of side effects of staying alive um, or we're being discovered through this. Um, and if this was a medical podcast, we could get into that. <laughs> it's not, fortunately. Right. Um, so I think to a lot of people, I looked like someone who was just having a rough go of it for a few years. Um, and I was at least marginally aware that this was all like life changing and health changing, especially by the time I got to surgery three, I was more aware that like how my body functioned had dramatically changed. Um, both in ways that affected me more or less. Um, I developed uh, migraine after my second surgery, which wasn't super great and never went away. I also 
I mean, I, I got like secondary adrenal failure for a couple of years, which I don't recommend. And I worry about with all of the, the current stress in the world. Um, so I know I spent time in therapy and spiritual direction talking about, you know, like all of this is changing everything and, and it's all relatively unseen. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure out how all of that worked with all of the like beautiful theology and liter liturgies I was also like studying and loving and experiencing. Um, and I think that kind of dovetails into another question that we talked about before we started recording, which is, you know, what happens to, well, you know, it's interesting, like you said, you're kind of, you have this situation going on and to people who maybe who aren't in the situation, it appears like, Oh, you know, Robin had a surgery or whatever, you know, she had some health issues and they, they just don't really, um, you know, none of us can read anybody else's mind. So we don't, we we're not part of all the different things that are happening and all the things that one might ponder when something changes everything. Yeah. Um, so um, what about, you know, and I'm sure it's a, I'm sure this is a complicated, complicated question, but what about your experiences, whichever ones you're, you want to talk about um, with illness, with the sort of side effects of the surgery or, you know, all of this, what effect did it have on your faith? How did it affect your faith? Um, was it helpful? Was it not, was it, you know, like, like in new ways, did you think, come up, you know, think of things in new ways? Was it, detrimental was it a mixed um situation yes <laughs> i know it was not a very well phrased question i'm sorry well no but i think it it was all of those things um and it sort of depended on the season um because I, I know i had sections of life where i was like um you know, like the discipline of needing to take meds every day has like this weird parallel with the daily office. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's like, okay, well, I can do one, I can do the other. Sure. Um, but then there are stretches of life where it's like, I would give anything to not have to deal with this today. Um, I think it also meant I cared more about some of the like weird and arguably never perfectly answerable questions um you know that whole like where is god in suffering and and how do we make sense of this and how do we talk about things like pain and suffering um i remember sitting in one class and we were reading some mystic um who i love but the mystic was you know sort of writing rhapsodically about how like all of this suffering had brought her closer to God because of course it was a woman and my class is like this was such a beautiful transformative experience and I, I sort of took them all to task because I'm like pain is bad stop saying this <laughs> and to their credit like they were able to hear that but um you know you're sitting there and you're like you guys don't know what you're talking about right now <laughs> like never say that again just don't <laughs> right <laughs> you're you're missing like the fundamental issue that pain is there to tell you something is wrong <laughs> um 
So, I mean, we have a, a friend who, who has said for years and years and years that like bad theology kills, uh, which is true. Um, yes. It, and it does. And it does. And yeah. I, I think, and you know, if, if you want like the summary of it, like all of this sensitized me to some of that in a way that I probably wouldn't have been otherwise. Um, and are there things? I'm sorry. Oh, and seminary was really sort of my first personal introduction to the concept that church is literally inaccessible sometimes. Um, because um, so part of the surgery is they do a graft site on my leg, which is overall pretty fine, but it makes it hard to walk for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I still remember. Um, I, I had had surgery uh, over spring break of my senior year of seminary, which, um, yeah, that was weird. Don't recommend it. I mean, these are the things that we, we do sometimes that later you look back on and go, How, I, okay, I, I don't know that that was wise, but it happened. Well, and I mean, to go back to a question you had asked earlier, at the time I was really glad because... Um, there were two dates my neurosurgeon was mentioning as possibilities. And the other one was the day my mom died. And I was like, I can't uh, do that to my family. Like there's right. no way. Right. Um, and the other date happened to be in spring break. So it wasn't like I planned it for that. It just like was the better choice for so many other reasons. Um, so, and of course, because it's seminary, spring break is not that close to Easter. So I was still like early in recovery in Easter. And and I, I mean, I wasn't like invalid, but everything takes a lot of energy after surgery. Um, And I had been debating if I could like spend the energy to go to any of the Holy Week services. And I was like, well, I think I can get to Monday, Thursday, which is just one of my very favorite services in the church year. I have a lot of favorite services in the church year, but it's one of my very favorite ones. <laughs> um, and I was really excited. I was like, I don't think, I, I mean, I know I should expect not to be able to go up and get my feet washed because that's actually going to be a lot of work for me right now. Um, but I got to the chapel and all of the foot washing stations required you to go upstairs. I remember that. And I was just yeah. like, oh, Okay, well, I, I knew I wasn't going to do it, but now I can't. And that was hard. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it was very formative <laughs> in a lot of different ways. Yeah. So, as you went, you know, so eventually you graduate from seminary um, and go back out into the world and begin ministry and, you know, get ordained to the transitional diaconate and priesthood, which usually for most people is a whole story in of, of itself, but um, you've been in ministry for quite a long time now. So yes. these, these formative experiences, I mean, there's no way you could have all these formative experiences and then just sort of go about your ministry, not have them influence you, I would think. So Day to day, you know, you're, uh, you've been a parish priest for a long time. How has, have your experiences influenced um, your ministry? Um, 
I, I remember I was doing an internship and I was sitting down with someone and they were sort of like laying out some of their approach to hospital ministry and such. I was, it was like a weird power dynamic because they were this, they were ordained, had been ordained for years and I was like working for them. Um, and they get to a point where they're like, does that make sense? And they were like asking for my validation <laughs> um, because I had had so much more experience being on the other end of this. Um, which is to say, I do think it makes me think about what questions I ask. I know there are questions I will ask people who are in hospital or um, contemplating procedures that I wouldn't ask if I didn't know what it was like to be a patient. Um, my two favorite ones that I just increasingly routinely ask anyone who's dealing with medical stuff is, um, you know, do you like your doctor and do you trust your doctor? And if they're in the hospital, tell me about your nurses because nurses are the backbone of hospitals. Mm -hmm. um, I, I hope, and I don't, I hope it has made me more sensitive to people who, um, for whom like, the way church has happened isn't working anymore. Um, I mean, I've been doing this long enough that I'm sure I, there are people out there who would tell you that that is true and people who would tell you that isn't true. Um, but I hope it has. Um, I think it's made me a little more willing to say like, well, if that's not working, we'll, we'll just do it differently. Um, I was reflecting the other day that one of the things I've started doing, it took me, years to do but one of the things I have started doing at the beginning of services is tell people I'm not going to tell them when they sit stand or kneel that everyone's going to do some things and not everyone's going to do other things and they're going to make choices and we're going to trust their choices and um I kind of I really miss that part of the service <laughs> which is so small but like this ability to you know, sort of like verbally mark this as space where it is safe to just exist with your body, however that is working for you today. I miss that um, because I think it's a, a fairly radical approach to space and communal actions. I think, yeah, I agree with that. I think particularly in a sort of um, Episcopal or Anglican setting where we have, we even have jokes about about the, you know, the different movements that go with the liturgy. Yeah. Traditionally. Right. So there, I mean, there are even memes and jokes about pew aerobics and, you know, sitting and standing and kneeling and do you genuflect or do you do this or do you do, you know, do you do that? Yeah. What is the appropriate thing to do at this time? What is the acceptable thing to do at this time, which you definitely not be doing at this time. I'm, I'm really over all of it. People. <laughs> I, and i invite you all to join me on this side like do what works for you if it is not helping you authentically worship god you don't have to do it you just don't and no one should tell you you do um i think it's also um made me a little more comfortable saying like look, there are questions that we don't have answers to, but here's what I believe about it. 
like, I don't believe God is punishing you. I don't believe this is like some cosmic lesson you have to learn. Sometimes things are just terrible and God is with you in that. I believe that. Um, but but it, it sounds like that almost goes back to that experience in the classroom where people were talking about the pain being meaningful in, yeah. for this mystic. And you said, actually, hold on. No, this is just terrible. <laughs> like, right. You can find meaning in it. I do believe you can. But I tell people, as I, I believe God is like the ultimate creative and will waste nothing, which includes our pain and suffering and misery. But that God doesn't create any of that. God responds to that creatively with love and generosity. Um, and that's easy for me to believe. Um, not every day, but like that fits with the God I see in scripture. So that seems like a good segue to a question that brings us to the present, um, which is um, with all of that background, um, you know, it sort of seems like it seems natural that you might want to start a podcast to talk about illness and disability, but what was it in particular that made you decide this was something you wanted to do? Um, I forget what was going on, but I was dealing with some health related thing. Uh, and I was sitting down with one of my mentors and complaining <laughs> um, because sometimes you need people you can do that with. And they looked at me and they said, you know, somewhere in this is a great testimony that it is being shaped in you. And I remember in the moment being like, well, yeah, but right now it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> like my response to this was not, oh, yeah. It was like, yeah, no, right now I, I, want, I want it to not suck. Um. But I kept, I kept seeing the church struggle with things. Um, I mean, really everything from like all of the conversations about marriage to some of the liturgical debates that I just don't have patience for <laughs> anymore. Um, to, uh, I'm in Canada now, so we had a whole medical assistance in dying conversation. And I'm like, and one of the things that kept coming back to me is like, how I approach these is so shaped by having been like the person in so much pain that no medication will touch it. Um, or with the condition that is not responding to any of the conventional treatments or whatever, you know, story would, would flash through my head. Um, and I, and so some of it was like that through line and some of it was watching people in the pews struggle with the same thing that like my body was struggling with in that moment. And I'm like, the people who need us to talk about this better aren't like some outreach population they're the people who are actively in our pews that we are underserving um and there are clergy uh so i and i sat with that question for 
in different ways for years. And I would think, well, maybe I'll do, I'll do this. And I'm like, no, that's not going to do the thing I, I, I want. That's not going to change the thing I want to see being different. Um, and then I bumped into, I think through disability Twitter, which is like an underrated resource <laughs> in the world. Um, uh, a list of uh, principles of disability justice. Um and the concept of disability justice communities. And I was like, this is brilliant. Um, and one of the things on there is you don't do anything alone. Like you have to do it in community and conversation with others. Um, and I, I sat with that for a few, few little bit. And at the end of it, I was like, okay, so part of what I have been missing and all of my other like ideas that weren't going to work out um, the way I, I wanted them to was I didn't have a conversation partner. I didn't have community around this yet. Um, so I started asking instead of like, well, what's the thing I could do? Like, who are the people I could do it with? And that's when you came to mind. And I was like, someone who I, we're not like in lockstep. We don't agree on everything. And we come from different places, but who we often arrive at similar places with is Stephanie. Let me call Stephanie and see what she's into. <laughs> and now we have a podcast. And now we have a podcast and the rest is potentially history. Yes. I, I want to, um, I think the last thing I want to ask you or just pick up on from the things that you were just talking about um, is that I think, and this is not just the church. This is not to throw the sort of just to blame the church or whatever, but I think um, you mentioned disability justice and in the world and in the church in many places, um, including sometimes places that perhaps should know better, <laughs> there is a sense that illness and disability, um, you know, all of those things and all, this, all the things that are sort of adjacent to that, um, that those are very individual things. Mm-hmm. And that whatever it is that's happening to you is for you, whoever you are, to struggle with you know, kind of on your own. I mean, and, not just on your own, but quietly out of sight. So you're not inconveniencing other people. Right. And it's a shame, but what can we, what can you do? Right. I, I feel like that, that I kind of am hearing that mm-hmm. through this, that it's the discovery, the discovery of disability Twitter, which is like you said, an underrated resource with a lot of energy and a lot of information. Um, the discovery of disability Twitter is really important. And the realization that there's an entire community and an entire universe of people that might be experiencing some of the same things. And it's not just, oh, mm-hmm. it's a shame that this happened. Shrug, we can't, you know, there's nothing we can do about, about mm-hmm. the problems that brings up. And for me, I, I mean, that, that sort of realization was in some ways a return to like undergrad Robin, who was, um, you know, alone in her dorm room, often like frantically Googling things and trying to find people with any level of similar interest. And this is like back in the early days where people had anonymous blogs and wrote true things on them that were hard about their lives um, and finding people who had all sorts of other health conditions or disabilities uh, was like, Oh, these people are the people who get it. So disability Twitter for me is sort of like this um, 
return to this early community of people who did not make, who made me feel not alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and disability Twitter is fierce. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I love them and I fear them. I know. <laughs> but it, 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 you know, it is, it seems like it's, it's people who refuse to be put in a little isolation corner and mm-hmm. you know, what is the, what is the tagline of disability justice? Nothing about us without us. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I want, I, I, yeah. Um, so that, that was sort of, I don't know if inspired, inspired is probably the right word. I should not underplay that. Um, but that was a process that led to both of us sitting here. <laughs> You know, when we were putting this together, when we started talking about this, we spent a long time looking for a very, I don't know, um, for a, like a sexy title or a very spiritual title or a really snappy well, title. For we wanted podcast. a title that would be fun to say and communicate what we wanted to talk about. Right. And we spent hours with an open Zoom channel. <laughs> Trying to find something that connected like disability and church, Jesus things, um, and right. scripture maybe, the Book of Common Prayer, <laughs> um, and things were either not universally applicable or attractive to both of us, um, and the <laughs> one we picked may not be universally attractive to you. So uh, sorry. Um, or had already been taken, and we wanted something that made it easy to find us. Right, and oh, so many good, all the good stuff is, so many good things were taken, um, so many different biblical illustrations were taken, all kinds of random things, too. Yep. Um, yeah, you never knew what it would be. It would be really funny when you started Googling. Um, and then there were other things we started thinking about, and they just, um, honestly, just were snarky. And well, we can both be snarky. We're trying to to not live in that space because we want this to be a little bit more helpful and accessible than snark can sometimes be. <laughs> yeah, it, as some of those things, as fun as they might have been to say on an open Zoom channel between New Jersey and Alberta. Um, <laughs> It, I re- we realized quickly that we wouldn't want to say them over and over again, and we wouldn't want to, you know, yeah. talk to people at a diocesan convention about our podcast on XYZ. And you so there, it was very clear very quickly that they were they might be funny, but they're not productive. Yeah, they weren't they weren't helpful, funny, right? Um, and then I think the phrase we we lifted the title out of. It's something I have memories of you saying for years and years and years. I might be wrong about that, though. Which was? Uh, the church is inaccessible until the altar is accessible. Right. Okay. I, I'm not sure that I can uh, claim that. I may have made that up. Someone else may have made that up. Or that might be a riff on... Something, something else. else from another part of society. I do not truly do not remember. I say I I can't like 
but it's just tagged in my head as like a very Stephanie thing. Um, and I forget how it came up, but I think I was in the phrase, we were in the phase of just writing down anything that seemed reasonable, not necessarily even good, just like plausible. Um, and we came back to it and then we were like the accessible altar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like it's falling out of my head right now, but I feel like that's a riff on other, again, other things from other parts of society basically like this is not accessible if the if you know such and such is not accessible or such and such isn't fair or such and such isn't equal if so and so isn't at the table or mm-hmm. isn't in leadership or whatever it's you know so it's sort of it morphed from other things that people have said also the classic disability um disability justice slogan of nothing nothing about, about us, us without, without us. us right yeah Yes. And that um, if you're in new to disability um, justice issues, that is the first thing to sort of carve into your brain. Yep. You know, if, you, if this is something you're learning about for the first time, nothing about us without us is absolutely is the slogan of disability justice. And if you are so we are both um, liturgical Christians and we both have hung out in, in fairly high church parts of that. So a lot of the ritual and and things that can go with that. Uh, So for us, the altar is often a core symbol of what it is to be the body of Christ in worship together. Yes. I think that's a really important thing to include. So as because we're both out of the Anglican tradition, um, because we both went to sort of like, right, like a higher church Episcopal seminary um, for us, the sim, you know, we can have conversations about the priesthood of all believers mm-hmm. and the ministry of all the baptized and all that. And, and then, and the ministry and the way in which God works in all the people in the world. And that's, and that is very, that's critical and that's very important. But in our tradition specifically, that symbol of leadership um, in the worship service is the priest at the altar or the Bishop at the altar. It's um you know, like that's yeah. at least like visually where if you're sitting in a pew and you're looking at the front of the church, you know, when you're in a, in our, in a church, one of our in, churches, in yeah. one of our churches in non COVID times, if you're looking at the front of the <laughs> church, what do you see? I know. What do you I'm see? Covered. You see the priest um, at the, the altar, altar and they are doing the liturgy of the, what we call the Eucharist or the Holy Communion. And that's, yeah. Um, and such an important symbol. Yeah. So, and I'm, we're both very aware, and that's not how every church is set up. But that was the imagery that the title is based on. Right. The core right. thing that we do together, made accessible for all the people, so we can actually do it together. And we picked the name with both the recognition that the the altar is often say often is usually not fully accessible to people and the hope that we the work we're going to do here and and the conversations and the people we'll we'll be able to engage with um, can help make more altars more accessible right and I I think 
part of the reason the name works, at least for us, is that it, when we talk about something being accessible, it refers to literally accessible. Can you physically get to a location in a space? Mm-hmm. Um, and most, like Robin just said, most of our, most altars are, are not accessible to everyone. You can't, um, many people are not physically able to get up the stairs to the altars in many churches. Um, and I do understand the reason for that in order for people in an assembly to see things are traditionally elevated. Um, yep. Yeah. Uh, but well, and it draws on all the sort of Isaiah imagery of the altar and God lifted. Like, it, yeah, there's, there's beautiful theology to that, but it's not accessible theology. It's both pract- and, and sort of practicality of what people have always done. If you want to see somebody speaking, you put them up on a higher place and mm-hmm. all those things. But there's also the figurative issue of the altar being accessible. So that's when we talk about who gets to be in leadership and who doesn't get to be in leadership. And what, I mean, ableism can be internalized like so many other isms. What is the theology um, and goal and, and how is that applied to the church and to how ministry is being carried out? Because there are times when that can be done with great intention and work towards accessibility, even in horribly inaccessible buildings. And there are times when all of the accessibility, physical accessibility in the world isn't going to change a theology that is very ableist. Um, so trying to find a better world in, in both of those those realms is, I don't know, a dream, hope. Right, right. One of the things that happens with ableism and people who maybe otherwise are quite informed on a lot of topics, um, one thing that happens is they have... Uh, an unexplored idea of what's possible for people. So there's a lot of quote common sense about, well, people with XYZ disability, well, we know they can't do such and such. And it just see, it's an unexplored, unquestioned common sense. And in many cases, that's, that's not correct. Um, yeah. It's like a, just a lack of experience or a lack of education or perhaps maybe not being introduced to people with that disability or people um, or people who have had a particular disability for a long period of time. If you're newly, if you have a new disability, if you have, you know, and you're adjusting to something, what you're going to be able to do may look very different because there's a, such a steep learning curve. It may look yep. very different to uh, compare to someone who has had a disability for a longer period of time. So if you suddenly, your, your vision, for example, has suddenly changed, you've got a learning curve that's very steep and challenging where it's going to take you a while to adapt to that and to learn you know, adaptive technology and adaptive techniques. Somebody who has had that level of vision loss for decades isn't going to necessarily have that same experience. So, so much is dependent upon who you, uh, for the average, for the average sort of non-disabled person, so much is dependent upon um, who you've met and whether common sense really is common sense or whether it's just like, <laughs> just not having ever known and not having had a chance to, to be educated otherwise. Um, but yeah, to go back to that, 
that concept. Um, one thing we've talked about off mic, and I don't think we want to share all of these stories on mic, and we'll talk more about some of the things guiding that decision in our next episode, I think, is where we have that slated. Um, is when you hit these things, you often, you you don't always know that it's not just you, that these the individual barriers or complications or inaccessibilities you're encountering and engaging with the church at all or with being part of church leadership are part of a larger systemic inability to grapple with ableism and accessibility. Uh, So a lot of this podcast will be interviews and conversations with people um, to raise the awareness that, that, that there's a community of people who hit those issues and none of us are alone. There might be individuals and on different levels, but we're not alone in trying to struggle to be faithful in community with accessibility issues. Right. And I think it's our hope that we can introduce um, a number of concepts that maybe people haven't run across before. Um, Mm -hmm. There is an entire universe of concepts around disability accommodation, disability justice, what is disability, the theology of disability, the sociology of disability. I could, you know, I could go on. Um, But there are a number of concepts that, again, sort of turn that so-called common sense about what disability is and isn't and what it means and what kind of capabilities it represents. It well, turns all that on it. That's kind of on its head. Yeah. Well, and a even lot out there. at a level um, below all of that, like who disability touches. I don't, I will talk again. I think that conversation is coming up, but like when we talk about, building accessible theology and and practice the people who are impacted and need that are not just people with disabilities. They're often the people who know us and love us and listen to us go on about it at other times and places. Yeah. I think that's really important. And there's an interview coming up in another episode where we talk about that a little bit, um, which I'm actually transcribing right now. So I'm being reminded about it. Um, But the point, I think the point being that when an organization or the church or an organization in general, but the church specifically, because the church claims to uh, at least try to speak for God, when the church makes certain things Mm -hmm. inaccessible or to certain people, whether that's because of disability or some other reason, um, it really does, it, it does impact not only those people, but the people that they love and care about because it just becomes, it becomes painful. Well, and it, I mean, it has an impact on the people who don't know they're being impacted either. I mean, the both like people, disabled people and the people who know and love them usually have some level of awareness about that. Maybe not always, but usually, but it also impacts people who are deprived of the ability to see and understand that, you know, the beloved children of God come with a range of bodies that work in a range of ways. Uh, and that, I mean, we're, we're, we're veering straight into the theology of disability a bit here on a, a very introductory level, but 
the God I love and, and know and understand loves that about people. And the church should represent that better. Exactly. Um, we've talked off, you know, off mic, I guess, off recording about um, the ancient concept of sort of who is the default human, the Aristotelian mm-hmm. concept of, you know, the male in the prime of their life, the sort of cis male in the prime of their life being the quote default human. And um, all of this is about a different vision mm-hmm. of of humanity and the broadness of humanity and the image of God. Um, so we, yeah. we are jumping right into the theology. But <laughs> right into the theology. And I'm going to go a little bit further. Um, when I teach Genesis 1 and, and talk about it with people, I always make the point that this was not meant to be a like list of like things that got checked off, but it, it's a poem meant to represent the breadth of everything they could think to name and categorize that was created in the likeness and with the blessing of God. And that includes all range of people and people with disabilities, people without disabilities, people who live with an assortment of disabilities um, that are, are named good. And that's right. right. And, and we want, we want to, reclaim that and and do some of that naming of good and seen and beloved. Um, So yeah, this is our podcast, The Accessible Altar. So welcome to The Accessible Altar. That's right. What are things you like about the name that we picked? Oh, what are things I like about the name that we picked? Um. You're going to laugh at me, but the, the first thing I thought of is I really like the alliteration. Um, <laughs> that was something I remember both being like, and it's alliteration. It has alliteration, yes! Which, yes, we're geeks. We know that. <laughs> it made me very happy. Um, um, I, I do actually like, that's, that was a good question. I really do like the fact that it has multiple layers. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and that it is, it's not exclusively Episcopalian slash Anglican, but it definitely has a little, it has an Anglican feel to it. I like that too. Yeah. I agree. I like that it has multiple layers. I really, as we've lived with it, um, you know, sort of privately for several months now, I've enjoyed um, the slight flip in my head that has happened where it's still tied to that, you know, the church is not accessible until the altar is accessible concept but it's now also tied to the hopes and the dreams that we're hoping to further through this work that the altar can be and will be more accessible and the church will therefore be more accessible and more welcoming and more open to the beautiful diversity of the people of God. And I've enjoyed that like flip. So I I hope that happens for a lot of other people through this too. Yes, I think that we are living in a time where we've seen renewed calls for justice for so many people. It's so, it is so important. And I like the idea of helping to further that conversation by helping this group of people, which Mm -hmm. is such a wide and diverse community. Um, But 
I like the idea of helping to further the conversation about this group of people being included in those conversations that people are having that, that are maybe new to a lot of people when we're talking about systemic injustice. Um, I, I like, uh, yeah, I like the idea of this getting, uh, of being part of people that are working to make sure this is part of that work. Yeah. Because it's so important. And this is tied into all the other, like we already, we already talked about this Aristotle's, this Aristotelian <laughs> idea of the quote default human, right? There is no such yeah. thing as a default human. No. Um, and this work is tied into all that other work that's saying there is no such thing as the default human mm-hmm. and that people of, um, you know, of all races and genders and backgrounds and, you know, origins and faiths and everything else, sexual orientations and mm-hmm. everything else. Um, that all of these people represent, we all are a default human. Like, there is no such thing as a default human. We're all this sort of the default human. We are all. We're all beloved creation. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so this is, this is part of this. This is part of making sure that when we're having that conversation, that we're not leaving anybody out. Amen. I think that does a beautiful job of it for me. Thank you for joining us for this conversation about faith and disability. We encourage you to find local conversation partners to talk about your experiences of faith and disability. Before we conclude things, Stephanie, are there any highlights from these, from either talking with me or talking about the name that you wanted to circle back to? I enjoyed hearing your story, of course, um, and everything that you've learned along the way. And, um, The other thing I liked and that I wanted to highlight is that um, in the the section about how we chose the name, we talked a bit about how this is one part of including everybody in the conversation. And um, I think that's really important. And I think that's the key for why we are doing this. We want to bring people into the conversation that have not been in the conversation before. And I think both the conversation about faith, which has often excluded people with disabilities, and the conversation about disability, which um, people who understand themselves to be able-bodied don't always see themselves as being part of. Exactly. Yeah. So I hope you enjoyed our episode today, and I hope you'll join us next time. You've been listening to The Accessible Altar, a podcast at the intersection of faith and disability, hosted by Robin King and Stephanie Shockley. For additional information about anything we talked about in this show, including a transcript of the show and show notes, uh, check out our website, www.accessiblealter.com. We are on Twitter and Instagram as at Accessible Altar. 
and join us on our Facebook page at The Accessible Altar. If you have questions, feedback, or ideas for future episodes, email us at accessiblealtar at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.